0: Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Samuel, welcome to the year of our Lord, 2022.
1: It's good to be here. That's going to take a while to get used to. Yeah, 2022, yeah. It used to be that I would write, you know, homework assignments or papers or checks and I don't do any of that stuff anymore, so it takes me like three times as long to get into the new year and remember what year I'm in.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I, I keep – the way I organize my files in my Google Drive and stuff is I, I create a folder for each year. So I did have to make my 2022 folder and set up the new personal worship structure under 2022. So I've had at least a week to get used to it. But uh, folks, if you hear a little nasally sound in my voice, I'm still battling a cold that I caught – when I was out of town attending my son's wedding, um, and I will tell you, the wedding went fabulously well. We had a wonderful time, and if I have to suffer with a bad cold afterwards, it was all worth it. The wedding went off without a hitch, and I didn't get sick until after the wedding. So, huzzah! I'm happy with all that. <laughs> you know, on balance, Sam, you got to take the you got to take the bad with the good sometimes. You know, I'm That's just good. I'm just glad I didn't get sick till after the wedding. So we're launching into a new message series here, which is called He Gave Us Stories, the Parables of Jesus. And uh, today we're coming to Matthew chapter 18, and specifically the parable of the unforgiving servant. But uh, Sam told me before we got started that—and we're going to look at a portion of it in which Jesus gives instruction about the reconciliation between brothers, what you should do when your brother sins against you, and then how that ties into the parable of the unforgiving servant. But Sam told me before we got started— that this whole chapter rests on a certain foundation. So, Sam, why don't you set the stage for us? What what's going on here in chapter eighteen? Sort of bring us up to Jesus's instructions about brothers forgiving
1: brothers. Yeah. So, so if you say Matthew eighteen to just anyone on the who's familiar with church jargon sure they they think about forgiveness and church discipline cuz right. that's what this chapter's known for right and but that doesn't start until verse 15 so if you're doing your personal worship you'll notice that's that's kind of where we pick up but the whole prelude to that there's there's different sections right before that and i've always had read Matthew 18 just kind of like it's a hodgepodge of different teachings that jesus is is walking through and you know you get to 15 and he's taking a, a little bit of a left turn um, but in this, he's in the first 14 verses, he's focused on one, one expression, and that's little ones. And so at the beginning of this, you have the disciples who come to Jesus, and, and by little ones, he's talking about humility, we'll see, um, the people who are humble. So at the beginning of this, he has the disciples who come up to him and they say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Of course, because they all want to vie for that, right? They're, they're not humble. <laughs> they want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus kind of bursts their bubble, and he calls over a little child and brings the little kid in, in front of him, and he says, unless you become like a little child, you can't even enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and he gives this really strong language, a strong language at the beginning of Matthew 18, he says, if you cause one of these little ones, meaning somebody who humbles themselves like a child, if you cause them to sin, it's better for you to have a large millstone hung around your neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. And then Jesus is going to to go in and use some language that we're like, holy cow, he starts talking about sin and he's like, man, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. And then he goes back to the little ones again. He says, it's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. But then he turns and says, see that you do not look down on one of these little ones. And you think, well, wait a minute, which these little ones, what's he talking about? Well, it goes back to verse six. And what he's saying is, one of these people who humbles themselves, who's stumbled into sin, sin is very serious. And he doesn't walk away from that. He just... He treats sin extremely serious. But then he looks at his followers, these disciples, and he says, if somebody falls into sin that's that serious, you do not look down on them. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father. And so he's talking about people that are humble, that have fallen into sin, that are grieved over their sin. He's command, do not look down upon them. And then he tells this famous parable about uh, if a if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than the ninety-nine that did not wander off. And then he brings in this this phrase again. He says, in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost." And so the first 14 verses of this chapter are building with Jesus talking about the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are like little ones. And even if the little ones venture off into sin, do not look down on them and do not think that they're not worth chasing. Because if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, he'll chase after that one. And like that, your father is not willing that any of these little ones, these humble ones, even if they're stumbling and falling and sinning that have come to me, he's not willing that any of his humble sheep should be lost. And so he's building this ethic in the first 14 verses of this chapter that show that even in the intensity of how he sees sin um, and the gravity of what it means to cause one of these little ones to sin, that the weight and the way that he talks about sin is kind of measured against this incredible tenderness to the lengths that God will go to rescue one of the little ones and how he does not want us to look down on them. He wants to rebuild them and redeem them and give them dignity. And so then it goes into, okay, so what do you do if in your church a brother or sister sins against you? How do you you deal with it? Okay, if you're not supposed to look down on them and you don't want to just consider them lost— how do you move forward with somebody who's sinned against you? And so this is where the teaching goes.
0: You know, I don't know that I've ever heard that um, humility described as being little one before or really thought about that. But that's a pretty good description of it, to basically make yourself small. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In a given situation.
1: You know, when, when Saul, King Saul falls, and, and this going back into the Old Testament, when God comes to him and he says, I'm, I'm taking your anointing away, essentially – he says, you used to be small in your own eyes. And that was what God thought of as a qualif- qualifying trait for somebody to be king. You were small in your own eyes. You know, you didn't hold yourself up as the greatest. And that's when the, when the disciples come and say, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, the smallest. And he's going to say in other places, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be the servant. Yeah. Um, and that's the ethic of the kingdom. You yeah. know, the, the greatest will be the least. Ooh.
0: So, verse fifteen, we come to this situation where one brother has sinned against another brother, and it uses the word brother, but it's it's not you know it's it can be a a sister that sinned against another sister. There's not a fellow believer, right? uh, One believer has sinned against another, and it says, uh, beginning in verse fifteen, it says, "If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother." But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So that's the Matthew 18 principle. I mean, I've heard it called that many times. So like, mm-hmm. You know, it's like, did you do Matthew 18? You know, did you follow the Matthew 18 principle? So... It's like that's like got its own label in church speak of the Matthew 18 principle. Um, it's a three-step thing. Like you go to him privately, you go to your, you go to your, the person who's offended you privately. When it says that sin's against you, um, when I was looking at that for personal worship, I'm like, okay, so, you know, a sin against you would imply that you were somehow harmed by what this other person did. Is that, is that a correct understanding it's not like you should be going to somebody and say um i 've seen this in your life like like this isn't like one person correcting another randomly. This is Sam has done something to harm Mark, and Mark's supposed to go talk to Sam
1: yeah, I mean, I think that's true the The idea is the person's actions are causing you harm right i mean that can that can be grief that can be the loss of some kind, it can be you know tarnishing the reputation of your church. It, so I mean there's different ways. It doesn't mean that they have to punch you in the face, you know, okay. to where it's like, hey, I've really sinned against you. Okay. <laughs> you know. But it's also not busybodying. You know, there's, right. there's a difference where you know the Bible's very, very clear that you are not to be somebody who pokes your nose and is just looking for faults in everybody trying to, to meddle all over the place. Um, and the, the idea behind this in that first line, it says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. And it pays – it gives you very clear boundaries. It says that you're to do that between you and him alone. Well, why does it tell you that? You know, here you have a sinner that's being addressed, and yet the, the burden here that Jesus is laying down is protect the person's dignity. Right. Right. You know. Don't say, look at what they're doing. Does everybody see what they're doing? I mean, how shameful can they be? It, it's, it's saying, no, no, no. You want to protect that person's dignity. You don't want them to be shamed. You don't want them to be embarrassed. You go and you do it between you and them alone. Right. And then the next line tells you what the whole purpose is. If you have the heart of Christ, it says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Which if you're going to confront someone on their sin, what is the primary motivation that should be in your heart? To gain your brother. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's not to, hey, you know what? I'm wounded and I want my pound of flesh and I want to hear you say you're wrong. If that's your motivation, do you need to repent. <laughs> you know? no. The motivation for, for where you start in Matthew 18 is to gain your brother. That's really hard. Sometimes when you've been deeply wounded.
0: Yeah. Well and and I also think that when you say gained your brother, I sort of envision that as a strengthening of the relationship between you and your brother. Uh, you know, like it's a it's an increasing of the bond. This idea that that if, if if the outcome that you're looking to achieve is not one where the relationship between you and your brother will be better afterwards than it was before, you're making that's you're wrong right there. You know, if you're going in to sort of to cut him off, that's not – this is not that kind of meeting. This is – I'm trying to restore the relationship to make it better, to make it stronger, to make gain.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a, a great proverb that's in Proverbs 27.6. I love this because I think it's true. Uh, but it says, the wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Um, and so what that's saying is if somebody's come to you, no – Somebody who's genuinely seeking your good who comes to you to share a very hard thing. It's hard to confront somebody and their sin. But if they're genuinely your your friend, the wound that comes from being confronted can be trusted. And you need to take that wounding and grow from it. But it's, it's the people all around you who do nothing but pour praise upon you when you're at your worst. <laughs> they're, they're the genuine enemy. Yeah. Um, they multiply kisses and never confront you on on your problem. Someone who genuinely loves you and knows that there's something that's harming your relationship, something that's harming their soul. You know, they love you enough to wound you for a moment so that you can heal back stronger. That's a true friend. And on the other side of that, if they're genuinely restored, that friendship, no doubt, is going to be much stronger. Hmm. So
0: if your brother doesn't doesn't listen to you. Um, it says that you're supposed to take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established. Now, you know, I'm assuming that, you know, that instruction from Jesus isn't just go grab two random people. Um, you know, you're you're looking to, if not having the, you know, some of the elders go with you, it would certainly be looking for some other people that know the two of you. I mean, this is not a, um, you know, because... I just, If this principle is properly executed, it's restorative. So Mm -hmm. you're not going to show up at this guy's door the next time with two strangers in tow. Mm -hmm. It would have to be somebody that was known to the both of you, that was known as a mature Christian, um, that somebody that that had, you know, just this idea that you're not going to take somebody unknown into the situation. Would you agree with that?
1: Totally. Yeah. I mean, you got to remember the main main goal of all this is is to win – your brother who's who's often error right and so if you're doing this just to win an execution you know to to gain a conviction all right we got the evidence now let's prosecute they're going to know that so you know the goal of of all of this when you're going with them like you said is to have somebody that uh he trusts you know that he's going to look at who he's they're going to believe you know this is somebody who wants my best somebody who's eager for me um to, to live up to my full potential and yeah. to, to do the right thing and to have a flourishing life and all that kind of stuff that's going to soften that hard exterior. You know, it's really hard sometimes for for wounded people to see where they are in the wrong. And so taking somebody that they trust is huge, yeah. totally, because the goal is to get that person to soften and to repent and to be reconciled, you know.
0: Yeah, you you want to have somebody there that that when they hear this they look at the uh, the people that you brought with you and say is that how you see it also. Yeah. You
1: know? Because but, I care what you think, yeah. Right, because I care what you
0: think. So then verse 17 describes the the final escalation of this, the third stage of it, which would be which would imply again that he refuses to listen. He's hardened himself not just against the the brother that came to him, but he's hardened himself against the group that came to him. And he says that if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, I'm just going to suggest, folks, this does not mean you get to stand up on Sunday morning and broadcast it to the entire congregation. What we're talking about here is taking it to the elders, taking it mm-hmm. to the pastors. Um, that's really what is happening at this point, is that you turn to the elders or the pastors and say, "I have this conflict. It can't be resolved." Um, And that's where they get involved. Uh, And I have been, unfortunately, over my many long years as an elder, um, I've been involved in more of those than I care to be involved with. You know, it's like it's very difficult when that comes before the session. Um, We spend a lot of time talking to people, gathering information, you know, getting together, praying, letting, letting information sit for a little bit while we think about it and pray about it and get more information. It's like, it's better to be slow to act uh, and to act correctly than to rush to judgment uh, in those situations. But that sets off a process, and I guess that process is kind of determined in our modern times. It would be determined by the church that you go to.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's, when you talk about, you know, tell it to the church, you're right. This is, this is the judicial body that, that determines church discipline. It's not, it's not saying, like you said, get up and tell everybody but at the heart behind all of this, what do you? What does a person need? Someone who's in sin, what would they need to be able to, to, to soften and repent? Yeah. It comes back to where this whole chapter started, which is humility. You know, there have been times where somebody's come to me and said, you sinned against me, and I thought, absolutely not. Like, no, I, I just – I don't see it that way. I don't want to be – at, you know animosity or whatever, but the more people come to you and say, "No, no, no," you may not see it this way, Sam, but really, like you are out of line, and you need to to repent and apologize. Like even if in my own brain I've reasoned it out and I just don't see it their way, but a crowd of people that I really love and who love Jesus and who want my best are coming to me saying, "You're you're in the wrong." At some point. If I if I genuinely am humble and I recognize the institution that God has given to us in the church and the way that he's laid this out, it's not just the authority of these people that I'm, you know, acquiescing to or however you want to put it. It's It's the authority that God has put over me. And at some point I have to go, you know, maybe I just don't see it, but I trust these people who are in authority over me. And I'm going to listen to their voice, and if they're asking me to repent, then I'm going to respect the institution that God has put an authority over me, yeah. and I'm going to own it. And I'll tell you, you know, we live in a culture now where it's like if, if the church says something you don't like, you go down the street and you just church shop. Um, but where this passage is, is it's saying the church has authority to speak into your life if you're in the wrong and you've got, you know, all of the elders and these groups and they're they're coming to you and everybody's in agreement and you're saying, You're all wrong. None of you sees it right. And I mean, like like you talked about earlier, we've seen too many cases of that where people just say, Oh, you're all wrong. I'm I'm leaving the church. And it's it's tragic, you know, because there's nobody who wants to see that happen.
0: Okay, so and then if this fails uh, like you were saying just then, for example, you said that most people just say, I, I, you know, I'm not going to listen to you guys, I disagree with what you're saying, and they leave the church. I mean, that's what happens most of the time. I, In all of my years as an elder, we've never had an ecclesiastical trial of a church member where mm-hmm. they've been excommunicated from the church. Um, when the situation gets to this point, they've always just said, fine, I'm leaving, and they're gone and uh I mean they may be excommunicated, but it's done as a paperwork thing after they leave they're not they're not standing there for you know some kind of a, of a trial um, so then it tells you that uh, if they refuse to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax
1: collector what does that mean well back in back in those days when when you Referred to somebody as a Gentile or a tax collector, it meant that you're you're definitely on the outside of a <laughs> on the outside of the covenant. Um, so okay. it means treat them as an unbeliever. I mean, it's using language that they would have understood in that day. And by the way, Matthew is writing this, which is interesting because guess what? He was he was a tax collector, right? And so you know, not, he's, not a Gentile, but a tax collector, right? Right. right. And so you know it was inconceivable that Gentiles and tax collectors could be brought into the Jewish covenant community of faith back in those days. Yeah. And so the the world had a particular way, particularly the Jewish world had a particular way of treating Gentiles and tax collectors. They were they were outside um, of the covenant. And this is saying it's not disqualifying Gentiles and tax collectors from salvation, but it's saying treat them as though they're outside the covenant community. And that a lot of people would say that seems harsh, but the idea behind that's twofold: one is it sends a message to them that they're they're seriously deceived you know if if I were you know I don't even know I mean pick a ridiculous sin that I could be caught up in um,
0: you ate all the communion wafers uh before we could have <laughs> communion on Sunday.
1: <laughs> That, that wouldn't be beyond possibility, probably. Yes. <laughs> That's a lot of dry matzo, man. Let's 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 take like a more scandalous one. Let's, let's say you know I I didn't see anything wrong with habitually visiting prostitutes. Okay? okay. And someone came to me and they said, "Sam, you know you're 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 harming your." Or Laura came, you know, you're harming. And then she came to me with friends of mine, and I said, "No, I think it's I think that this is great. I'm you know I think this is godly behavior." Well, then the church comes to me and says, you need to stop this behavior. And I say, I just don't see it the same way. I'm going to continue in this behavior. When the church then says, okay, we're going to treat you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You're outside of the community of faith. You know, Elsewhere in the New Testament, it says that you do that to win your brother back to faith because it, it lays on him this deep conviction mm-hmm. that this is serious, that I've deceived myself into thinking that I'm an authentic member of the church community, but I am so far out um, of submission that I'm actually my soul is in danger. And so it's, you know, Paul will talk about handing people in this situation over to the enemy, to the devil. Um, that it, that you'll actually be won back to faith. It, hmm. It's it's like sending. Uh, a very strong warning to them that you are not doing well, and then the other side is that you're you 're going to win them back yeah. um, you know one of the problems that you have in Christianity is there are so many I used to hear this all the time, uh, you know, and we can 't judge souls, but there are so many people that are in church pews that are deceived into thinking that they 're authentic believers, that have never truly surrendered their life to Christ, they never uh, surrender to the Lordship of Christ. They've never really embraced the power of forgiveness and the weight of their sin and how much they owe their lives to Christ. And they're deceived into thinking that they're believers. And so they live their lives on their terms. And when they're, whenever they're confronted on a sin, they just – it, they can't handle it. Um, and this this is a means by which the church is calling people into that sense of surrender and submission to the Lordship of Christ and what he calls for us to do. Um, and so the ultimate purpose of this is the restoration of a believer it's, and, and the peace and purity of the church also because I'll tell you one of the other things that would, not <laughs> that would not be good is if I were doing those things and you know the Sun Sentinel got a hold of it and said, oh, here's a pastor who thinks that this is a great behavior and now it's reflecting all upon the church of Christ, the church would be able to say, no, 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 we do not – Endorse that, and in fact, we have disciplined him and removed him from the pastorate. And dot, 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 dot. So, it protects the, the purity of the church and the reputation of the church, gives the sinner this sense that there's a very profound um, and weighty need for him a call to repentance. But then, it also gives him the best opportunity and the, the, the highest chance that it's going to spur him. Or her to repentance and sure. to be restored. That's the goal is yeah. to win your brother, to win your sister.
0: And that's been – I mean that's the goal of this whole thing, which mm-hmm. is to, to restore the relationship, to win them back. Um, and I think that, that you know, we think of discipline as being the consequence for your action. I've done something wrong. I'm going to be disciplined, which is punishment. But in this case this discipline is corrective it's restorative it's this it's this opportunity for somebody to uh, to repent for something that they've done to ask them for forgiveness to then come back to uh, to have the relationship to their brother and to the church restored so mm-hmm. um it isn't talking about the church is going to sit around and decide okay so you've done this to this other guy and you admit to doing it so we're going to figure out what punishment you should have there's none of that there,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, that, that we're not trying to assess the level of sin or the damages of sin, and we're not going to impose some kind of sentence or punishment or anything else. This is just a matter of we're trying to restore a relationship here.
1: Mm-hmm. There's that, that same idea that I mentioned in, in 1 Corinthians 5. This is a pretty ridiculous sin as well. But in that case, Paul is, is talking to the Corinthians who had kind of shrugged and approved at the behavior of a man who was having sex with his father's wife. And he's like, how in the world can you be proud of this? You should be grieved and you should put out of fellowship the man who did this. And then in verse 5, so it's 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5, he says, hand this man over to Satan so that, and here's the purpose, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. In other words, help this man understand the gravity of what he's doing um, so that he can ultimately be saved and come to his senses.
0: The, uh, the King James in that verse is the much more doom sounding for the destruction of the flesh that his soul may be saved. I'm like, ooh, ouch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now we have verses 18, 19, and 20, which in our personal worship this week, I pointed out are three verses that are very frequently quoted singly. They take one of these verses And they have been at times wildly misapplied. Um, So I want to read them, and then maybe we'll just kind of talk about how these things, uh, you know, do at times get misapplied and, and what their connection is here. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, the 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 subject of the binding and the loosing, that's one of those things that people are sometimes, you know, like, what does that mean? Whatever you bind on earth is bounded. Because you hear it used a lot, you know, in the pattern of, let me just say, televangelists maybe, prosperity <laughs> gospel people, where they come up and they're like, you know, I bind this in the name of Jesus. I loose this in the name of Jesus, that kind of thing. And what it's talking about here is restoring them to the church or cutting them loose from the church. Whatever you bind or loose, that's recognized in heaven. I mean, there's a very specific application of it here. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, for absolutely. So it's just talking about church discipline in which the judicial power of the church, the elders – are proclaiming, you know, the power to put somebody out of this community, and then it's coming back and saying, "Okay, whatever you bind on Earth." So this isn't Sam walking around going, "I bind you." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, Sam, would you bind that guy in the corner? He's getting out of control here. <laughs> so, You're, yeah. So it's not that. I mean, this that verse. This actually used to be something that scared me as an individual, and I think you know, I would think to myself, "Man, if I if I fail to forgive someone, or if I forget." To forgive them, am I cutting them out of heaven? You don't have the power to do that as an individual, I, right? This is talking about ecclesiastical or church governance, and it, it makes that clear. And in verse nineteen, um, when it says, "Again, I say to you, if two of you agree," well, there it is again. It's talking about a body, a group of people, and that too is 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 about elders. And that word "agree," I just love this. In the Greek, it's symphaneo. Which is where we get the word symphony. And so the idea is there's a harmony. The, the, the whole body of elders, the church governance has come together and there's this universal agreement, this symphony where everybody is, is making the right noise. <laughs> you know, everybody's yeah. in agreement that this person is out of line. Um, when the church imposes that kind of discipline, heaven says, I endorse. Yeah.
0: And I think that verse nineteen also gets misapplied a lot of times. I, uh, again, typically in that same sort of setting, you know, picking on the televangelists again. But honestly, that's where I hear it. As I hear it mm-hmm. a lot in the in the some of the more kind of out there prosperity gospel preachers who will say, you know, if two agree on earth. That it will be done for them. And they're like, You can bind God to answer your prayers. You can, God has no choice but to answer your prayers. And I'm like, Ooh. Yeah, that drives oh, me crazy. Oh, that just makes parts of my, that makes hair stand up. I'm like, No, 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 folks. We cannot bind God to answer our prayers. We don't control God.
1: Yeah. I would say that there are probably groups of two different. Two or more Dolphins fans that would disagree with this verse. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, especially (laughs) this season. Please, yeah, yeah, please let us win. So, I mean, what do you do if you have two believers that are, you know, Dolphins fans and two believers that are Titans fans and they're praying that their team wins? Like it's not obligating God that both teams have to win. That's, That's an absurd a totally right. absurd. Rendering. Obviously,
0: as we know from this past Sunday, the Titan fans were, were closer to God than
1: the Dolphins. Yeah, that's fans right. Were. Yeah, always. So, um,
0: <laughs> at any rate, it, but it is you know again I've I've heard it applied to this sure. idea that this somehow compels God to do what they ask for. Mm-hmm. You know, James makes it very clear: you don't have because you don't ask, and you don't get what you ask for because you ask for the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So it's like God wants us to ask in prayer, but God also wants us to ask for something, ask in accordance with his will. Mm-hmm. So part of this process of prayer is to, is to align ourselves with the will of God and to pray for those things that he wants us to pray for. The great mystery here is why he wants us to ask him anyway. It's like, God, why should you care what I think? You know, it's like, but he does. He wants us to pray. Yeah. Um but he wants us to pray for the things that are according to his will. In James it says you, you ask amiss so that you can satisfy your own passions. Mm-hmm. It's like if I'm up there asking for the dolphins to win, that's the definition of asking amiss. I'm asking for my own passion. <laughs> right. You know, that kind of thing. So um
1: Yeah, and the whole you gotta remember the whole context of this entire chapter is about people who've gone astray people who have wandered into sin and how you discipline and restore and seek forgiveness and so that's what it's talking about it's this judicial body that comes together to to make decisions on on how to best shepherd people toward repentance and right. forgiveness and reconciliation right. that's what it's talking about when groups come together and agree then what they ask it will be done for them yeah
0: and the last verse verse 20 for where two or three are gathered in my name there am I among them. You and I both I think agree that that verse may have a larger application because Jesus sure. is Jesus is kind of he's sort of explaining what you know it's it's not really tied to the instruction as much as it's like an add-on thing. Mm-hmm.
1: It's like he's saying 18 and 19 are true verses 18 and 19 are true because where two or three are gathered in my name there I am among them. And so it's kind of universal truth. For verse twenty, where the other the previous verses have a particular application and context to this judicial process, yeah. And yeah. so here he's like, "Of course that's true, because where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them." Right. That applies to everything, and so I'd, I'd say that sh- that's true. But it's it is it's fascinating that this you know out of the mouth of Jesus is he's he's giving us, um, you know, a lot of times in in the church we. We just believe that grace means no discipline and we need to just accept everybody and everything and every behavior and never come down with it you know, saying, you know what, we're gonna treat you like a Gentile or a tax collector. You know, you hear if a church did that, we'd be like, oh, don't they understand grace? Right. And if if you don't understand how that's a part of grace, then maybe maybe you don't understand grace because right. What led me to the Lord, I mean, it's in all of our hymns, was grace that taught my heart to fear, right? That's amazing grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. But there's there's a part where to be found, to be saved, you have to be lost first. And if you're arrogant and you don't see your sin, you don't see the weight of your sin, the gravity of your sin, and nobody loves you enough to confront you on it, that's not grace. The Lord is calling you out of that yeah and so that's the purpose, one of the purposes of church discipline here that it this is all driven by a heart of grace. He doesn't want any of the little ones to perish yeah so then we move
0: on to the parable of the unforgiving servant, where we start off with a question from one of our favorite guys, Peter. <laughs> you know that peter and we you and I have said this before peter i I'm so grateful for Peter. Because Peter steps right up and says the kind of stuff that we're thinking, but we wouldn't really have the nerve to ask Jesus. Peter's like, I'll ask him. No problem. I I got it, guys. So Peter steps up, says, Then Peter came up, verse 21, and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, when Peter came up to him, obviously Peter's like okay I got it I got it someone's going to sin against me and they're going to come to me I'm going to go talk to them and they're going to be like "All right, um, you know I'm sorry and I got to forgive him you know he sinned against me and I got to forgive him how many times do I have to do that well when he said seven times he thought that he was being generous because there was this rabbinical opinion of that time and just in general that you forgive someone for the same sin three times But after the third time, there's no more forgiveness for that sin. You did it three times and asked for forgiveness three times. I'll forgive you three times. You come up here with number four. Nope, nope, you're out. There's no no forgiveness for that. And so Peter was believing, and I was thinking, hey, I'm being generous here. I'm saying three times? No, no, no. Six times? Nope, I'll go one more. Um, But Jesus' answer where it says 77 times, or if you're, depending on the manuscripts, if you're a uh, majority text, Texas Receptus guy like I am, um, it actually is 70 times 7. So it's like an even bigger number. But regardless, Jesus isn't giving Peter an exact number here, is he?
1: No. It's, it's saying there's no end yeah, to there's no, much unlimited. you should forgive. Yeah, yeah. and this, we've talked about this when we went through our study in Genesis, but this is echoing. What happens in Genesis 4 when you have Lamech who comes along and God had warned if somebody attacks Cain, God will avenge him seven times. And Lamech comes along and says, oh, yeah, well, if somebody harms me, I'll, you know, hurt them 77 times as bad. And so the ethic back then was if someone harms me, man, I'm going to lay down vengeance seventy ti- 77 times or 490 times, however you want to look at it, more intense than the original offense, and Jesus is turning the vengeance into an ethic of forgiveness. He's saying, if they hurt you, no, 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 you have to go seventy-seven times the forgiveness. So the ethic, instead of being vengeance, is very much mercy. Um, it's it's incredibly beautiful how Jesus, you know, responds to these things on the fly in mid conversation, and he's pulling things from you know Genesis four. To be kind of the anti, you know, the fallen man once a pound of flesh. Mm -hmm. And Jesus flips it on his head and he's like, no, 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 you need to be every bit as radical as the world is toward vengeance. You need to be that radical toward mercy. Yeah.
0: But Peter understood that Jesus had been giving them some parameters and Peter was, you know, Peter was being Peter. He's like, okay, I got it. I got it. How many times?
1: And I love it. you pointed this out before we started recording, but you notice that Peter does not come to the Lord and say, "Okay, how many times are they going to forgive me?" Right. <laughs> how many times assume. do I have to forgive them? Right. He's not the center, so oh, how many times do I have to put up with these people? Right. Like before, I can no, just wrong. bonk them on the head when they come in. <laughs> no, no, no. We're done with
0: you. So, yeah. And so, but but it does connect the teaching with the parable. I mean, Mm -hmm. because Jesus then immediately goes into, let me tell you a story, Peter. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me. And I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. So, scene one of the parable: you have a servant who owes his king. Let's be honest, ten thousand talents—that's that's the definition of for that time a debt he could
1: not pay. Oh, like yeah, it's such an exaggerate. A talent was seventy-five pounds. So we're talking about gold and so when you do the math, <laughs> sorry for those out there that are going to hear me do math, but 10,000 talents, that's 75 pounds each and in every pound there's 16 ounces and today's market for gold is somewhere around 2,000. So when you put it all in, we're talking well over a billion dollars. Um, this would be like – I want to say like five billion dollars or something like that. It's It's an insane amount of money and it's – To a servant, so this is a slave who has no, no ability to earn. It's not a chance like he's going to strike a big deal or he's got a you know a big thing working. No, he's a, he's a household servant who has accrued a five billion dollar debt. Right. There's no chance that he's going to be able to pay him back.
0: And if he and all that he had were sold, the master might get a few talents
1: back from it. So yeah, and probably not even yeah. If this <laughs> you think, why in the world has he allowed him to build up such a big debt and part of part of the thing is when you understand this parable one the first time you go into debt to God, it's an infinite debt you don't you don't accrue it's not like, well, I've got a little bit of sin that I can pay off, but so long as I don't get really bad to where it's like this guy where man, he's got a really a lot of sin you know, that he'll have to pay back to God. Like, the reality is any sin whatsoever produces an infinite debt to the Lord that you can't pay back. And so what does that do to all of humanity is it makes us all in this guy's shoes. We all have this infinite debt of sin that we cannot pay for. And so we, at the beginning of this parable, should relate to this man we have no ability. We can't earn enough to pay him back. We're not ever going to be, you know, good enough for the infinite God of the universe. We, we can't produce something that's worth how we've offended him with our sin and spat in his face and tried to war for his throne and, and all of those things. And so we're in this guy's shoes. We owe a debt we cannot pay. And the servant says something
0: that makes no sense because he says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything even though there's no way he could. And the servant had to know that. He had to know yeah. that there's no way he could pay that debt. Mm-hmm. So despite the fact that the servant says this essentially ridiculous thing, the master decides
1: to forgive him. Yeah, And, and when, when the servant says this, you can almost – it telegraphs the rest of the story. Because when, when he's saying, hey, I will pay back – this 5 billion dollar debt that i owe you he can't he can't possibly mean that right you know so it's it's like he just he give give me give me chance and you know give me some more mercy i'm really never going to pay you back but i'm okay with that like there's no chance that he and and if he does think that he can pay it back then <laughs> then he doesn't have a very big valuation on it right You know, this is no big deal then.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the master has forgiven him. And then the servant who's just been off, you know, he hasn't just been let off a hook. He's been let off all the hooks. It's like (laughs) this was a guy who was trussed up in every possible way. There was nothing that there was no place that he could go. Nothing he could do. And his master let him off the hook. So he goes out, verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, echoing same line, mm-hmm. and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. So second scenario here is this servant, who's learned nothing, goes out finds a guy that owes him 100 denarii. I wanted to make a point with this because we you know what we talked about 10,000 talents is an overwhelming sum. No possibility the first servant could have paid him. 100 denarii though was not an inconsiderable sum. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like they were saying that when he encountered the second servant because all of this money is standing in the place this debt is standing in the place of sin. Mm-hmm. We're talking about someone who has, we have sinned against the master. Somebody has sinned against us. Jesus is giving an illustration of the principle. The hundred denarii, it's not like I called you fat. <laughs> you know, it's not like I said, Sam, you're, you're, you're weird. Your mother dresses you funny. Or something. It's not like I insulted you. Or something. I've done something bad mm-hmm. for a hundred denarii worth of sin, a hundred denarii worth of offense. That's a chunk. It's mm-hmm. It was a hundred days' wages for the common laborer. Mm-hmm. It was a real offense, so the the first servant encountering the second servant, he had a reason to be upset with the second servant is what I'm getting at, and yet he learned nothing from his encounter from the master
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I mean and and you see that to go back to to what we were talking about earlier with his response where he says i'll I'll pay you back everything.' You know, when when the person he comes to who owes him the hundred denarii, it's very reasonable that he could pay back a hundred days' wages. Sure, I mean, it would take it, some
0: time, but it he would ta-
1: take some time. Yeah, it would be hard, but there's not a chance of you paying back ten thousand talents. And when he says I'll pay it back, like it gives the the application to that is this guy does not see his sin as that serious. If that's the equivalent, the ten thousand talents and it reminds me of a story and I got permission to share this but when I was when I was growing up and I was in my wilder days I had a friend and I didn't know this at the time but I had a friend who was going through a real horrible bout of depression and he was you know every bit the drinker that I was and so he had come up with a plan that he was going to take his own life And what he did was before he was going to take his own life, he went out to different credit card companies and he got as many credit cards as he could and he decided that he was going to do one big last hurrah. And so he rented a private plane. They went down to the Bahamas. They drank and got hotel rooms and everything else and he ran up to the max every single one of these credit cards thinking that when everything was done, he was going to take his life and leave the credit card companies stiffed. And when he came back to the states, he cracked. He had a, opened up to his parents, changed his mind, and he was stuck with this debt. And it was it was an insane amount of debt. It was like thirty thousand dollars or something like that that he'd run up in this short bit of time being, you know, not in his right mind. Right. But when he was running up that debt, the debt meant nothing to him because he never planned on paying it back. He it was, it was inconceivable to him that he was going to pay this back. But now reality hit and this debt was sitting on his shoulders. And a debt that meant nothing for him to accrue, now all of a sudden his parents step in recognizing how broken he is, how much in pain he is, and his parents stepped up and picked up that entire debt to take it off of him and and paid for it with him and walked through him, with him through that. But it it dawned on me when I was reading this passage the difference in how he saw the debt when he was thinking I'm never going to pay this back it yeah. meant nothing to him yeah it was cheap debt yeah but the moment that the gravity of the debt hit him and his parents stepped in and said I got this it was life changing for him
0: hmm.
1: and and the person who looks at God and says you know it's just sin yeah I'll I'll fix it I got it. That's like the servant who's looking at the master who's paid this enormous debt. I mean, we're not talking 10,000 talents. We're talking son on a cross. It's a payment so big we can't even begin to conceive it. And we look at our sin and go, yeah, yeah, I'll pay you back. Like, no, the right response of this servant is to bow down before the master saying, I can't. I can't. There's nothing I own. I don't have the ability to ever pay you back. Please have mercy on me because I will never be able to take care of this debt. And then when you see the master take care of the debt, if you understand the real gravity of how enormous that debt is and how costly it is, you would be changed. You, You would be amazed that someone could show you that much love. But this servant does not understand the debt he's been forgiven, not even a little bit. He thinks, oh, I got it yeah and we struggle with that. There's so many times where you know we sin and we think,, you know, I got it. I'll change later. You know, this is no big deal. Ah, God'll forgive me. yeah, And we treat sin and what it took f- to pay for our forgiveness, like it's cheap. And if you receive cheap forgiveness, it will not change you.
0: yeah. So that's the basis that Jesus gives in the story for why we should forgive one another. Even for a considerable sum, because remember, although a 100 denarii could be paid off, it was a considerable sum. It was not like he owed him a, a nickel. Um, Jesus is saying, because you have been forgiven this vast amount that you could not pay back, you should be willing to forgive each other these mm-hmm. much smaller amounts. Even though they're considerable, they're certainly less than vast and unpayable. Mm-hmm. So now we have a third scenario, and that is his fellow servants, watch what's going on. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him, I want to know what that perp walk was like, (laughs) and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Um, uh, One technical comment or, or language comment I wanted to make, the ESV translates that word jailers which makes it kind of sound like the master did to him what he did to the servant put him in debtor's prison Mm -hmm. but that's not that word there doesn't just mean jailer it means tormentor torturer Mm -hmm. Um, and every other English translation other than the English standard version either says tormentors, torturers or jailers to be tormented the idea is that there's an active punishment going on here he didn't just slap him in jail and say you cool your heels in there. He took he actively chastens him. He actively chastises him. So if there's a if there's a principle there, I feel like Jesus is saying to me, if you don't forgive your brother because you've been forgiven this vast amount, if you don't forgive your brother, I'm going to punish you. You're going to be chastised. There will be there will be something that happens to you that will be unpleasant. Is that a
1: fair thing to say or am I stretching it? No, I think that's that's spot on. And and they, back in those days, they didn't have bankruptcy laws to where you could go, just getting bankruptcy. You know, I give up all my debt. Um, I'm going to plead forgiveness. Back then when you had a significant debt and you came to a point where there was no possibility of you paying it off, they threw you into debtor's prison. And what would happen to you in debtor's prison, it wasn't just like, okay, go sit in your cell for the rest of your life. You were made to work very oppressive conditions to pay off your debt. And so, this idea of jailers to be tortured, it's not, you know, the, the image that, you know, comes to our mind is, okay, they're putting them on the rack and they're doing all these sadistic things to them. Well, you know, that's, that's hinted at the language, but where I think it wants us to go is, you're going to be under oppressive conditions working in this debtor's prison mm-hmm. for a debt that can never be paid back so you know i don't i don't think it means to insinuate the sadistic side of this but it is you're in a debtor's prison and you're going to spend the rest of eternity in oppressive conditions paying back the debt that you owe that you'll mm-hmm. never be able to pay back entirely mm. so then how do we take this parable
0: i mean the we we all know people who we think, and i'm I'm gonna say I say we all know, you and I know people that we think should, you know are genuinely repentant where it feels like there's not this forgiveness toward them that there's 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 times when this goes off the rails somebody somebody has committed an offense, they they are genuinely repentant, but the other person cannot find it within themselves to forgive and and notice that Jesus says, Unless you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, so it's not just lip service here. He's yeah. saying you need to genuinely release this and forgive it from your heart. If we are unable to do that, if we just can't find it within ourselves to do that, what do we do? What's the what's the answer there? If we're the offended party, and we're like, I, I hear you, I can't.
1: You know, I, if you're looking at the offense. There are some offenses that, if you only focus on them, you'll never reach the point where you can forgive mm-hmm. um, The key to all of this is to remember who paid the ten thousand talents mm. you know who paid the massive debt and that's you know the the equivalent there is Jesus goes to a cross to forgive you. I mean, I think of all these stories that are beautiful stories of forgiveness. In the the New Testament, where Jesus, you know, stands in front of somebody who is being shamed, I yeah, think of the the woman who's caught in adultery, and Jesus intervenes and puts himself in front of her and begins writing in the sand, and he protects her from the mob whose anger then turns to him, right? And he will go to it's it's not that she was innocent; he's going to go to a cross to pay her debt. Um, And so her forgiveness comes at an immense cost. He takes the savagery for her to be free. You think of Zacchaeus when when Jesus comes and says, hey, Zacchaeus, I want to have dinner with you today. This is in a a town of Jericho that hates Zacchaeus' guts. And the moment Jesus says, I want to have dinner with you today, Zacchaeus, come down, all of that anger then turns to him like, oh, this guy wants to have dinner with him. Jesus has this unbelievably sweet spirit where he covers us and he takes the savagery that's meant for us. And all these stories where he shows dignity to these people who felt like their lives were just wasted. He, he covers them. He shrouds them. He takes the torment. And, and that's when we have to say – and oh, by the way, all of their sin, all these people that he covers and shrouds with protection are the very people whose sins will put him on the cross. And yet he loves them anyway. And we have to be able to see ourselves as those people. We have to be able to see that our sin is what put Jesus on the cross. There's a great line, I can't remember which theologian, but he says, you can't see the cross as something done for you until you see the cross as something done by you. Hmm. And that's a very real thing. And Mm -hmm. so when you begin to realize that I am far more wicked toward God than anyone has ever been wicked to me. I don't care who that is, what human being on this planet. There's no one who can say that they have been less wicked toward God and what they have forced God to pay than anything that's been done to them. And that's some – even the most atrocious, awful, evil, unthinkable things. And when we understand that such incredible mercy has been shown to us – and what was the purpose for all of it? You know, it's, it's interesting. Jesus in this parable is saying, hey, the 10,000 talents was worth it if you go and forgive likewise. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about that. He's happy to pay – to forgive the 10,000 talents. But what makes it unacceptable is when that guy goes forward and he doesn't do likewise. Then all of a sudden the, the king says, then I revoke everything. And it's like when Jesus goes to the cross, there's, there's a sense in which he not only cleanses us and he pays all of our debts, but he's launching a kingdom in which he's saying to us, okay, now what I've purchased for you, now you in very much smaller amounts, way smaller amounts, now you go and forgive likewise hmm. because I want my kingdom to come into this world and to spread. And when we say, when we say to others, I refuse to forgive you. We're standing in the way of the mission for which he died. We're we're looking at the 10,000 talents and saying, yeah, but not my debts. Hmm. And we've missed the whole point of what he's wanting to accomplish in his kingdom on earth. Um, And so, I mean, there's also – so that's number one. You've got to understand that God has shown infinitely – more forgiveness and infinitely more mercy to you than he's ever asking you to give to another. Yeah, it's tremendous mercy. But then beyond that, like, there's a very real sense, and this—I mean, the, uh, psychologists can talk to you about this—that when you hold on to that resentment and you're demanding justice for yourself, it's poisoning you. You've heard that line, you know? Not forgiving somebody is is like swallowing poison, hoping that someone else drops dead you know it's it becomes your master it rules you yeah. uh, it, it it makes you unhealthy and so for the kingdom's sake you know you take you take the expense yeah. and it's not it's not ignoring the fact that it's costly to forgive it hurts to forgive but then what do you do with that well mm-hmm. you you want to win your brother
0: you know that imagery that you suggested when you talked about the woman at the well and you said Jesus stood or the woman accused in adultery, not the woman at mm-hmm. the well. But that Jesus stood in between the mob and her. I found myself thinking, I wonder how I would feel if somebody had had grievously offended me and I was struggling to forgive them, if when I lifted my eyes and looked at them I saw Jesus stand in front of them mm-hmm. and wow. say, I got that one too.
1: Wow. You
0: know? All of this is part of the ten thousand talents. Yours, his, everybody else's you're angry at him for something I've taken care of.
1: Mm. That's brilliant, Mark. I love that because really, I mean, the <laughs> he paid for them too.
0: Yeah,
1: that's that's really and that's just, really beautiful, you know. And when you, if you love Jesus enough for what He's done for you, then you can put on the eyes of faith and see that just as precious as you are to Him, and all the stuff that you've had to be forgiven for. Right. This other person. Insane. who's walking through their own wounds and walking through their own hurts and has parts of their stories that you don't know about. You know, <laughs> they're just as precious and he paid every bit as much for them as he did for you. That's a brilliant way to think of it. Is he's he's covering them too. Yeah.
0: You know, um I th- I can't think of a better modern day example of it to leave as a story at the end of this, but do you remember when Dylan Roof shot up the AME church and mm-hmm. killed nine people? Mhm. Um and the families, some of the families of the people that he had killed, uh, came into the courtroom and embraced him and forgave him uh, because of that same principle. Like he had done the worst possible thing he could do, which is to kill one of their loved ones, and they wanted him to know that Jesus died for his for him also. And that was I can't even tell you how. I looked at that in amazement, and I thought yeah. that is real faith. Those are people who their faith is deep, and it is it is in every inch of them. Um, I was really s- stunned by that.
1: Yeah, and so is the watching world. I mean, the I, <laughs> the news media, and the same was true. If you remember the the shooting at the Amish school, yeah, where the you know kids were killed, and afterwards the parents took meals. To the parents of the shooter. shooter, yep, and and I remember the the media was like, "This is otherworldly," and yep. it is otherworldly, exactly. Yes, you it know? is. Yeah, and that's where you know when when we're able to, and I'm look, forgiveness is hard, and there's times where I'm th- I got names as I'm going through this week's passage of people that I think, man, I have a hard time wanting the best for them. Yeah, you know, I I just I'm angry at them. I'm I feel like they're damaging things. I want my pound of flesh, um, but individual like we're called to want the best for our brother and to leave it to to the you know church judicial team or the Lord, yeah. you know that's not in our hands, yeah. but to really to revel and the forgiveness we've been given makes us forgiving people.
0: Now, I want to I want to say one thing and then we'll wrap up maybe on this, but I do want to let people know that what we're talking about here is people who are coming with a spirit of humility mm-hmm. that that we're not talking about a situation where somebody is actively engaged in the kind of behavior that will harm someone else. Mm-hmm. We're not saying you yeah, should don't. forgive them and ignore that When that when no 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 we're We're, not
1: calling you to be a doormat.
0: Correct. Please don't get that from this. This is talking about a situation where all the parties involved are being as small, you know, humble, small as they know how to be, and they're all coming in submission to the Lord and in repentance, seeking forgiveness and restoration. That's the situation that we're talking about here. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not calling us to be doormats. Mm -hmm. Um, I know so many times that people have have misapplied this and said that women, for example, who are in abusive relationships should stay because, you know, no, no. We're not telling anybody that they should suffer harm or abuse in any way. We're talking about a situation here where people who are submitted to the Lord, coming in humility, seeking restoration know that the Spirit is mm-hmm. going to be there with you to help you to be able to get through that. So I just wanted to make that clear because that's something that yeah. I think we get accused of sometimes in the church, generally, as mm-hmm. broad brush, of saying that, well, you're just saying that somebody should just stand in there and take it. And I'm like, no, no, no. No, God's not asking anybody to stand in there and
1: take it. So, And, and in those situations, I think, you know, God has given – Means of justice to where if somebody's doing something that's that's gross, he he gives courts and he gives police and he gives and we should absolutely avail ourselves of those. And so, what do you do? Forgiveness does not mean um, I'm going to let you walk all over me and I'm going to let you continue this pattern of abuse on me. Because by the way, that's not loving at all for that person who's doing the abuse at all. Right, right. But the right thing to do is to say I'm not going to allow. This abuse to continue, but at the same time, I am going to give this person's um, justice and punishment and all of that over to the Lord because I'm not going to allow it to rot me from the inside. Right. And so, Lord, I pray that they are turned. I pray that they're humbled. I pray that they change. And I'm giving that to you because I can't walk around with all the bitterness that it would otherwise consume me up. And so. I'm willing to forgive when that day comes. Not not to go back to, you know, <laughs> back into the relationship or anything like that. Right. But I'm willing to give it over and hope the best for this person should they turn. Like that's at the heart of forgiveness. You're yeah. hoping the best even for your enemies. Yeah. And that's hard. That's real hard. It's other world. one of the other things that's interesting and my wife pointed this out when we were watching my boy's baseball practice yesterday. As she says, you know the the parable is interesting because it's when the other servants saw what happened, so it's not the master who says, "Hey, I saw that, and I'm coming." So the parable is is picking up on the church discipline. It's when the other servants say, "Hey, here's somebody who's not acting like our master." Mm-hmm. and they then come and say, "This person is not acting like you." And then the master imposes the discipline. So it's it, that's an echo of church discipline. So the servants who say, hey, this person is in sin and they're doing something that's really disgusting and despicable by, you know, beating this other guy and throwing him into prison, that's the church leadership. That's the elders that then go to the master and say, this man is behaving wickedly. And the master, the Lord, then picks it up and says, all right, now I'm going to impose the ultimate discipline here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's 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 a reflection of how that church discipline works. But I love the idea that when the servants see that the kingdom ethic, right, the, the king has forgiven the debts and now that ethic is supposed to take root in his household. When it doesn't, the servants of the household come and say, hey, this isn't happening yeah. and this is not allowed in this household.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good word, and it's one that we're going to end on. Um, We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us. Uh, This beginning of the series, he gave us stories. We're going to be talking about additional parables over the next few weeks. Uh, I have to say, Sam, it feels good to get back in the saddle here. I mean, my voice is a little rough, but I've enjoyed... Today um, I had lovely three weeks off, but I was ready to start the podcast again you know?
1: yeah me too. yeah so I, ho- I hope someone tunes in.
0: <laughs> yeah well let us know if you did folks if you tuned in and if you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is out of water atrio vistachurch.com Vista dot com. That's where you can find all the back episodes of the out of water podcast at Riovistachurch.com out of water. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or on Spotify, or in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app. Just look for Rio Vista Community Church in the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store, and you can find it for download there. Sam and I will be back next week with another one of the parables in the series He Gave Us Stories, and we look forward to seeing you then.